Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we finish up our study called Lost in the Noise that used data from David Kinneman and Mark Matlock's book called Faith for Exiles to connect modern trends to the teachings from the book of 3 John. This final message will focus in on the motivation that love brings to draw the resilient Christian away from a love for self and towards a gospel-centric love for the nations. Thanks for joining us on this journey as we seek to keep a generation from becoming lost in the noise of a digital Babylon. I'm going to share something that might get me in trouble. So if, uh, if you identify with me on this, you might want to not say anything. I can remember in a seminary, uh, there would be an abundance of new parents who would bring me pictures of their kids, their newborns, and say, oh, look, it's a baby. And I'd be like, oh. I mean, great. I don't know. Now, let's just say for the record, all babies are cute. Let's just get that out right now, right? But I never really had uh, much interest in looking at picture after picture after picture of their newborn until I had my own. That's right. And I become one of those people said, look at this picture. And people are like, oh, okay. yeah. why is that? It's, a, it's an easy, it's an easy question with an easy answer. It's because of love. That's it. It's because there is, there is no measure, no distance that I would not go to share and shower love upon my children. Now, sometimes that looks like discipline because a father disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines his children. But isn't it the same for you? Is there no measure to which you would go? Is there no sacrifice to which you would give for your own kids? Just yesterday, we were doing a little yard work on a beautiful day that we had. And uh, my wife brought us uh, Wendy's. And so I was particularly hungry, having not eaten here till about 3 p.m. And uh, as uh, I had my little girl sit next to me, I kept hearing my soda disappearing through the straw (laughs) until there was none left. And then she ate my fries as well. (laughs) Do you think I minded? No. You know, I'd I'd rather go hungry and get to see my children uh, satisfied and and to, to be happy. Because that's what love does. We, without even trying, would be willing to sacrifice for that which we love. It's a, I think it's such an interesting quirk just of human nature that we tend to be willing to share things we love. You could almost go to any country on earth and find that of those peoples, of those traditions, whatever culture that you are in, there's some component of their livelihood, of their traditions that they love, that they're willing to share with you. Whether that's a recipe or whether that's a good book, whether that's a joke, ever hear a good joke and some people just can't keep it to themselves? Well, that's a quirk of human nature. We share and we sacrifice when we love. We have been studying here in 3 John for a while and also looking through the uh, statistics that have come from our book, Faith for Exiles, which again, we're going to be wrapping up today. And today we are going to be addressing with the final few verses out of 3 John, some contrasts on love. And we're going to seek once more to identify how we can be those kinds of disciples that the book qualifies as resilient. Again, just as a point of review, as we're looking into this for the final time this morning, that 
the researchers, as they gathered data, found there to be very clearly four different segments, four different types of Christian. First of all, people who are ex-Christian, then those who only come once or twice a year, then those who come and leave but are never invested in the work of the church, and then those who can withstand the hurricanes and the winds and the earthquakes that happen within their life or within the church, that they are committed and they are carrying the title resilient. Uh, We are giving our attention to see how God's word lines up with those qualities. And so the writers of the book, as they found these types, have also identified there to be five characteristics that these resilient disciples had in abundance that the others did not. As point of review, those are once more, first of all, your identity, that they understand Jesus to be real in their life. Secondly, they see the word of God as something that's bringing conformity for their mind, that they are being changed and being made new according to the teachings of Scripture. Thirdly, that they participate. They don't simply attend, but they are actively investing in intergenerational relationships in the church. We call that community. And then fourthly, as we talked about last week, that there is an integration with their life Monday through Saturday and their faith on Sunday. So that as they go into the workplace, as they go into the marketplace, they carry the badge, the jersey, if you will, of Jesus with them. Today, we're going to wrap this up with our our fifth and final one. It's called Mission, a love for the gospel. In 3 John, we are going to be in verses 9 and 10. But before you turn there. I just want to share an observation that I made recently in in my own personal Bible study. I was reading through the book of Acts, and of these five characteristics, I noticed that very early on in the story of the church in Acts chapter 2, there are four things that that, uh, Luke identifies the church as having characteristics that were notable. If you look with me here in Acts 2, verses 42, it says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I I have been able to identify that four of the five characteristics of a resilient disciple are seen pregnant in those four characteristics of the early church. The first, being identity, meaning experiencing Jesus, is seen in their practice of breaking bread. When the early church would gather together, we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of every month. Well, they would celebrate it weekly. And for them, it wasn't an insulting tiny little piece of bread and a little insulting tiny uh, sip of juice. It was a meal. And during that meal, they would sit as those who together were equals. You would have those who are high culture in life, those who are well off in the upper class, and those in the lowest class sharing the bread with one another, sharing the cup with one another because they believed in doing so, they were welcoming the real presence of Jesus with them. Jesus was not a story character. He was real. Second thing I notice here, because our second characteristic was conformity, that they also devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there, very early in the church, before the church had collected all of the documents written by James and John and Paul, they would listen to the teachings of the disciples, to the apostles, and in doing so, submit to that authority as that which was needed to help grow them and change them so that they could think according to God's will 
and not according to the conformity of the world. So identity and breaking of bread, conformity being seen here. Uh, the next one I think is, is fairly obvious. They devoted themselves to fellowship. I was talking with Sandy Carey this morning as we're trying to get fellowship back up and running. And one of the announcements as we are outside under the tents moving forward, we're still going to have fellowship available after church here inside the building and would encourage you all stick around because do you know what the early church did? They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now in a church, this was inter generational. In the same challenge that we saw with a resilient disciple, I don't simply attend church, but I'm invested in the lives of those young people in church, those older than me in church, focusing on mentoring relationships that happen organically. Well, I hope you can see that in the very early church, that was a component of their worship as well. And then fourthly here, prayer. Prayer representing the integration of the needs of their life and their faith to be brought together. Can you see it? All right. you guys, I, I, hope, I hope you don't think I'm just making this up. I, I truly believe that of these characteristics that we can identify today, we see them. We see them in the very earliest church as representative to those people who are defined as Christians. That distinctive behavior that doesn't look like the world, but only characterizes a Christ follower. But what about the fifth one? What about the last one for today? You remember, it's called mission, having a love for the gospel. Well, if you um, indulge me here, just let me read through this a little bit more. He says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then a verse that I left out, one that you heard in Donna's reading this morning from a verse previous to this, Luke records, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see mission? It's right here. As the church is characterized as those who are defined by Jesus, devoting themselves to experiencing Jesus, conforming their minds and thinking to God's will and God's word, fellowshipping with one another, investing with one another, and integrating their faith by prayer, what was God doing to the church? Adding, adding, adding to their number. Now, as I've looked through uh, this little book that we've been reading, uh, the title that they've given this fifth characteristic is this. It's a long title, but I wanted to share it with you. They say that the fifth characteristic of a resilient disciple is somebody who can curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in counter-cultural mission. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Is our world today entitled uh, I, I decided to do a quick Google search on this. You could replicate it on your own. First number one hit that came up said that 71% of Americans believe that millennials think they're entitled. That's that 18 to 35-year-old generation. Yeah, I think that if, if those of us who are older look back, we can say, yeah, there was a time where we had to pay our dues in order to get whatever we enjoy in this world. But millennials, they want it when? Right now. Yesterday, if preferred. 
Now, I don't want to rip on millennials too much, right? There's a lot of good that's going on with millennials as well. But the statistics are haunting. There is no generation more quickly departing the church than the millennial generation. And that slippery slope, I fear, will continue unless we refocus on these characteristics that need to define us. The authors of the book, the researchers, this is what they call it. This mission, this ability to be on mission, as we will see from 3 John, is a reorientation, a recharacterization of your love. So with that in mind, I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me once, one last time, to 3 John as we read through this short letter together and then seek to make a couple of observations for how we can be resilient disciples in our world today. 3 John, starting in verse 1. The elder To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. Even as your soul is getting along well, it gave me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church, church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much more to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to come and see you soon and we will talk face to face Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. What a great little letter, isn't it? I hope you've enjoyed reading through it. I certainly have been blessed by seeing a picture looking back like a time machine into the struggles that were going on in the early church. Similar struggles that are going on today. In John's day, there was an epidemic of people leaving the church. And there was an increasing fervor of those who were antagonistic to Christians. This is the culture in which John pens this letter to the elder of the church there, to Gaius. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. And we're going to be uh, looking specifically into the life and character, those values of this individual named Diotrephes. Four things that were brought out here, as you might have caught them in the text that Diotrephes is doing. Number one, he is gossiping maliciously about the missionary band that was coming, and about John. Secondly, not satisfied with that, as the missionaries came to the church, he refused to welcome them. Not satisfied with that, 
he stops others in the church who would have welcomed them. So not only was he stopping them, he was also stopping the other people who wanted to welcome them. And then if you were one of those people, what would Diotrephes do with you? He would kick you out of the church. As we seek to make observations concerning this text, what we're really going to be doing is looking in contrast to the character of of Diotrephes to see what a disciple needs to be like. If it's not like Diotrephes, then it must be the opposite sort of behavior and character that he has. Number one, a disciple lives differently from cultural norms. A disciple will live, will characterize their life, Not the way the world thinks, not according to the loves and values of the world, but instead that of Christ. We have uh, two really great passages in the New Testament that teach us this. Again, in the same subject of John, out of 1 John, John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and then he lists three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Paul has uh, a word to say on this in Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Diotrephes here, um, he comes from a place that is saturated with worldly thinking. In fact, his name, Diotrephes, it means one who is sustained by Zeus. That's what his name means. Now imagine, what, what kind of person are you to name your kid that? Uh, commentators uh, largely are in agreement, suspect that Diotrephes was raised with pagan parents. He was raised within a culture, not carrying values of Jesus Christ, which are antithetical, that they're in opposite to the world. But instead, he was raised to think very much like the world as one who is nurtured by Zeus or sustained by Zeus. Commentators say of his character, uh, Diotrephes is arrogant He's ambitious. He's wanting to be in control. He has what they call an ego problem. Uh, Am I preaching to anybody this morning? Anybody feeling that? Um, I got a a text this morning from Paul Jacobs. He's unable to, uh, Paul and Paul are unable to worship with us today, but he sent me a picture. Um, He says, uh, the subheading was Diotrephes over in Escanaba. And he took a picture of a parking space at one of the churches that says, Elder parking only, right up, right up front. Ooh, a little bit of a burn there. Uh, when the writers of the book, researchers, ask this question, uh, do you agree with it, that I want others to see Jesus reflected in me through my words and actions, uh, these were the results. Right? That hopefully you would identify this as a strong agreement. I want Jesus to be seen in my life. You you understand that's not popular, right? You understand that you may receive resistance from the world if you want them to see Jesus in your words and actions. But of 90% of those resilient disciples, they are in strong agreement with that statement. You know, as as I was looking through this, it occurred to me that John 
understands Diotrephes. Uh, one commentator said that his problem with Diotrephes is not theological, right? No, nowhere in this text do we have a theological error with Diotrephes. Instead, we have a moral error. There's something that's left sinful in his heart because it's patterned not after Christ, but after the culture of the world. Do you know John also thought that way? Uh, this passage out of Mark's gospel, you'll find it in Matthew as well. Watch this. This is early on in the discipleship of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, just red flag right there. If anyone ever comes to you and says that. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. What is it the boys wanted? Glory for who? Yeah. Understand that John lived through this. John knows what it's like to have your mind fashioned to think according to the cultural norms of the society in which he lives in. In fact, he was so bold at one point as to ask that from Jesus. My favorite part of the story is uh, when you get down to the end right here, uh, when the ten, that's the other of the twelve, right? when the ten heard about this, they became indignant. I, I think that, that's a pretty pregnant word there. I think they were pretty ticked off is what I think that word means. That's the Greek of indignant, right? James and John are asking to be first and we don't get to be first. Yeah, can you see any echo of, our, of your own heart there? Uh, on some level, we are all on a spectrum in process of saying like, John the Baptist, I must decrease. He must increase. So, to start off with, we're going to learn from Diotrephes that a disciple lives differently from the cultural norms. Secondly, a disciple puts others first. A disciple seeks to put other people ahead of themselves. Now, if you look back with me into the text here in verse 9, what is the primary characteristic that we learn about Diotrephes? John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who... Love to be number one. That's right. He's in love with me, myself, and I. This guy loves to be first. Well, a disciple, a true disciple, wants to put others first. Uh, this passage that Paul gives in Philippians is beautiful. He says to the church in Philip, I do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests only, but each of you to the interests of others. I thought maybe we could just do a quick thought experiment in our minds. We had the community meal, right, this past Wednesday, and um, it was inside, correct, right? So one of, one of the things that we have tended to do for community meals is everybody gets in a long line, everybody lines up, and we all go through the line. What if, just go with me on this as an experiment, what if the person in the back said to the one who is right behind them, hey, you know what? You, you who are last in line, you can go ahead of me. That they wanted to put them first. And then what, about, what if the next person in line also turned and said, yeah, I, I want to put somebody ahead of me. Too. You can go ahead of me too. And then the next person, what would happen to that one who was last? Oh, doesn't that sound like something Jesus said will characterize his kingdom? Those who are first will be last, but the last shall be first. And do you know what the amazing thing is in the line? 
everybody gets fed. Everybody gets to go through the line. But if we all lived according to a resilient discipleship, not like Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, if we all lived in the manner that said, I want to put others first, then we would embody the correct definition of God's kingdom, where literally the last becomes first. This was the quote that came from the writers here in the book. They said that churches that encourage young Christians to bless the lives of others and take epic risks to live out their faith, whether that's in the form of a missions trip to the other side of the world or simply offering a gentle pushback to today's pervasive UBU mentality, uh, you're making a connection. I, I hope that that's something that we all resonate with, that we understand that's what it means to worship at this church. We want to encourage young people to take those risks, to live their faith. Now, by young people, who do I mean? I mean all of us. That all of us would find that challenge in our hearts. A church that does that, we are going to be making an impact. So number one, a disciple is somebody who doesn't live according to cultural norms. Number two, a disciple is somebody who puts others first, unlike Diotrephes. Number three, a disciple confronts divisive behaviors. Now, this is not a popular one. I'm willing to bet, however, you already have earned your bachelor's degree in this if you have kids. I'm willing to bet that if you have kids, you know what it means to confront divisive behavior. When we're riding in the car and we start hearing the, Mom, and I just hit it, man. She hit You know, and when we start hearing that, what, what do the parents do? Oh, that's just our kids. That's just who they are. I don't want to, I don't want to, we have to be tolerant. No, we don't want, is that what we do as parents? No, I don't want to offend them. No, I pull the car over. That's correct, George. Pull the car over. Because what does love do? Love disciplines. And this is exactly what we see happening in the text. If you look with me again in verse 10, John says, when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. Now, I'll warn you, this is not a very popular thing in our world today. People really do not like confrontation. Think about what's at risk, church. Think about what's at risk. If we allow, by the way, you're going you're gonna to upset one another. I guarantee you will offend one another somehow. Some people, they're of the nature that they keep that bottled up and they just judge secretly in their hearts every time they see them. Other people, I'll let you know. So everyone's on a spectrum there somewhere. But what's at risk? It's the unity of our family that's at risk. And in the same way that I will not tolerate it for a minute in my own physical family, we have to be willing to address those types of behaviors that are divisive. There was one time on the mission field, uh, a pastor that I was working with uh, was speaking about an administrator who was at the school that I worked at. So I, I served at this church. I worked as a missionary at this school. And, you know, in small communities, it's easy to have these pet grudges against one another. And every now and then you might feel so bold and comfortable with somebody that you're willing to gossip about them. The thing is, I loved both of these people. And as this one minister was just regaling how that person is just, 
I, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to speak up and say, look, you have to stop talking this way about them. If you, I, I said, you don't know the, the perspective that they were sharing about them. They didn't have the full story. Now, the person that I was correcting, do you think they enjoyed that? Think that was that was a fun time? No, it, it, it wasn't. But it was necessary. It was necessary because our unity is at stake. Now, hear me now. The Bible gives us instructions on how to confront people. Um, we are told if it's an older man, you're to approach him with reverence like you would a father, an older woman with reverence like a mother, with younger women with absolute purity. So we are given instruction as, as to how to encourage each other. But understand that the Bible says our sharpening happens like iron sharpens iron. Have you ever seen iron sharpen iron? Sometimes there's friction. Paul, or not Paul, John here, John is willing to do that for the sake of the church, for the sake of the body, for the unity that we need. Number four, a disciple seeks to grow and unify the church. What, what was Diotrephes doing? Was he trying to grow the church with the missionaries? What about the people who wanted? Was he trying to unify the church? No, he, he was so much more concerned about his own brand. He was so much co- more concerned about his own, we might call it denomination in our world today, that he was not willing to recognize the brothers coming from John. He didn't want to grow the church. That's not what he had in mind. He had self-preservation in mind. Uh, you'll also see, if you look at verse 9, as John recounts Diotrephes' actions, he says he loves to be first. He'll have nothing to do with... Do you see that pronoun? It's not them. It's us. The perspective that John has is that as the missionaries are going out, the missionaries are not separate from John. They're representative of John. I hope you're able to catch us at the end with this greeting, right? Greet the friends there by name. Friends here send their greetings. We're not separate entities. We're one. So when Diotrephes doesn't want to grow the church, when he doesn't want to unify the church, John sees that not simply as an offense to the missionaries. That's offensive to us. You're destroying the unity that we all enjoy. You know, when it comes to being a missionary, uh, some people struggle with this. In fact, uh, we have a story in the Old Testament of Jonah, worst missionary ever. God said, go. Jonah said, no. He went the opposite direction. Why? It was because Jonah did not love the people of Nineveh. There was not a love grown in him, a love for the gospel, a love for the message of God to be shared for the people of God. And instead, Jonah, in loving his own way, his own will more, goes the opposite direction. And even so, after God turns his tail around, Jonah goes into the city and all he says is 40 days and then he'll be overturned. And then he goes up on a hill to pout. Worst missionary ever. What about you? Do you have anyone in your life that offends your sensibilities? Boy, am I glad they go to a different church. I'd hate it if they came to this church. I have to check my heart on this sometimes. This is not a family of my determining. This is God's family. It's so important that we don't act like diatrophies. 
And we need to make sure that we carry this characteristic as a disciple. We had a great study in, uh, on Wednesday, Bible study, talking about salvation this week. This passage also from 1 John. John says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. The gospel is not just for you. The gospel is for everybody. Now here's the problem. Does everyone believe? No. Not everyone is going to believe. That doesn't mean the message isn't still for them. Your calling and mine, not to act like diatrophies of exclusivism and ruling people out, but your calling and mine is to continue to spread that as far as we can. What's the song that we sang today, right? What was the chorus? Jesus, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Tell it on the wafting tide. Tell it on the rolling breeze. Jesus saves. Tell it far. Tell it wide. Jesus saves. And you will be motivated to do that when you have a love for the gospel. All right. Fifthly, a disciple encourages missions, engagement, and participation. Encouragement in missions, engagement, and participation. What was Diotrephes doing? Well, there were people in the church who said, hey, do you hear the missionaries are coming? You mean we haven't welcomed them? Hey, we'll go, we'll go do it. We'll go be part of that mission. And what did Diotrephes do? Ah, 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 ah. You're out of here, man. He did the opposite of this. So we're going to learn that a true resiliency within discipleship is somebody who actually encourages participation in missions, who encourages engaging in missions. I want you to see this in one other place in our, uh, our book, for our, our reading for today. If you look with me in verse 7. I want to remind you of when John characterizes those missionaries. What was it that caused them to go? Do you remember what it was? Verse 7 is the answer. For the sake of the for the sake of the name. These disciples were willing to go for the sake of Jesus' name. Now you know, it takes a lot to go as a missionary. You you have to give up quite a bit to go. As a missionary, you have to sacrifice quite a bit to go as a missionary. Was I willing to sacrifice, sacrifice my Dr. Pepper for my daughter? Was I willing to sacrifice my fries for my daughter? Why? What, what was it again? Because I, because I love her. These missionaries were willing to sacrifice because their love was not like Diotrephes, who loves who? He loves himself. Their love was for, verse 7, for the sake of the name. When the researchers asked this question, um, do, you agree, do you agree with this? I personally have a responsibility to tell others about my religious beliefs. Now, I don't really like that phrase right there. R- religious beliefs to me is a little bit like messy. Um, I would want to replace that with the word the gospel. But nevertheless, these were the results they came across. You notice an ex-Christian, how much are they personally caring at all about telling someone about Jesus? 7%. That was it. Those who just come on Christmas and Easter, whose job do they think it is to do it? That's the pastor's job, right? And you even have less than 50%. Only one out of every three willing to do it for those who regularly attend church. But three out of four resilient disciples, they all say, no, that's what it means to be a Christ follower. I have a responsibility to share the gospel 
because I love the gospel. Because I love Jesus. Are you all tracking with me? Verse 7, they went out for the sake of who? The sake of the name. The sake of Jesus. That was the love that motivated them to go. All right, lastly is this. A disciple is careful about exclusivism, favoritism, and selfishness. We see this again epitomized by Diotrephes. He is more interested in the exclusiveness of the church. He's more interested in showing favoritism, not to those missionaries, but only to the ones that he likes. This leader who has to always be in control is also characterized as selfish. Here's my warning. Be careful. Be careful with this. You don't have to really give this warning to a, to a poor nation or to a poor country. Exclusivism, comfort, favoritism. Do you know who are most affected by those things? It's not the poor. It's the rich. Do you know that you live in the richest nation? Do you know you live during the richest time? <laughs> I, I, I bet you could, you could fill a whole day with the stories that pastors could tell of parishioners who care more about their own comfort than about going and helping the lost or helping the poor. This is not new to our age. The Bible speaks of this, this great passage out of the book of James. James says these words to the church, my brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings and fine clothes, And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, I just got to point out that word, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You have to be careful with this. The only example I can think of is when, uh, when we were down in the Caribbean, we were looking for a particular type of urchin that, that uh, dries up on the, on the sand. Uh, called a, they call it a sea biscuit. They're, they're bleached white. They're, really, they're kind of pretty. Um, they're decorative. But nevertheless, as you make your way across the beach, you find all kinds of little treasures, if you will. That's kind of a fun thing to do when you're walking on the beach is say, oh, this is cool. And, and you can start picking things up. And, and as a family, we would find time to just go and enjoy our walk. And as we did, we'd fill our pockets with little seashells and we'd fill our po- pockets with all these little things that we thought were treasures. But then, lo and behold, my son and I were doing this a couple of years ago. We found some sea biscuits, but our pockets were already full. We, we had no room. This, this is the warning I think that that applies to a rich nation. You will begin to care more about the treasures that you have amassed. You have filled your pockets with things without even knowing it. This happens by accident. So that now when God comes and offers you a true, lasting, eternal treasure, you've got to be careful that you have not made room. 
because you've filled your pockets, you've, you've lined the, the, the cargo shorts that you had, you've lined your life with things that are tem- temporal, that are not eternal. This is, this is what I think the warning is, that we need to be careful with this. So, in point of application, I thought I want to make sure that we get this right. There's a wrong question to ask. In fact, I, I somewhat disagree with one of the conclusions that came out of the fifth chapter for our final characteristic. Um, what if today I just asked the church, hey, you need to be a part of countercultural mission. Where can you share more of what you have? Where can you sacrifice more in your life? Where can you learn to give generously? I bet if I just asked you that, you might leave today with somewhat of a feeling of guilt, somewhat of a feeling of, wow, man, yeah, I, I got too much junk laying around the house. I, I got to learn to be more generous. I hope the Holy Spirit would help control that within you, but I think that's the wrong question. I, I was not motivated with my daughter drinking my Dr. Pepper or eating my fries by thinking, you know what? I eat too many fries. You know what? I, I drink too much Dr. Pepper. Those weren't the thoughts that encouraged me to share. Instead, it was love. And so I believe this is the question that we have to ask today. Does my love for the gospel mobilize me? Does my love for the gospel motivate me? That's what I want to ask you today. Diotrephes was in love with who? He was in love with himself. John has a love for the church. John writes to Gaius in verse 1 that he loves Gaius in the truth. Uh, We have love mentioned again in verse 6 to characterize the way in which Gaius is helping the church. They have told the church about your love. All of this starts and ends And is characterized by having a love for God. And having a love for God's word to be shared with the people of all nations. So let me ask you that one more time. Does your love for the gospel mobilize you and motivate you? Let's pray.